All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salami, welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. This week, we're going to talk about magnetic robotic surgery systems. I spoke with David Fischel and Dr. Dan Cooper. David is the CEO of Stereo Taxis, and Dan Cooper is an associate professor at Washington University's School of Medicine who uses the Stereo Taxis system. And Stereo Taxis is an interesting company. It's one that I was aware of back in the late 90s when Intuitive sort of uh, rose to fame and took over the Robotic Surgery Center at the time. Uh, Stereo Taxis, at least to me, maybe I was uh, unaware of the distinction, but it was it was a different approach to having uh, technology-assisted surgery. They use robots, excuse me, they use magnets that are controlled by robots to control the distal tip of a device and you're able to guide it through the blood vessels with the with the magnetic forces. So uh, I'm going to open up with a stereo taxes interview. It went longer than most of mine. It was about 45 minutes, but I thought it was a great description as to how magnets can be used to uh, to treat people and to perform procedures. Again, I spoke with Dave Fischel and Daniel Cooper. Dave is the CEO of Stereo Taxes. I'm going to run the first half of that interview at the start. And then we'll bring in my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, and we'll also be joined by Daniel Kirsch, the senior editor at Mass Device. We'll go through the Newmarker's newsmakers, at least the first half. We'll get an update on the Theranos trial, bring you back to the uh, Stereo Taxis interview. And then later on, I speak with uh, Alberto Rodriguez. He's the founder and CEO of La Vida Magnetics, which is another company that's using magnets. Uh, its first product actually uh, is used without any sort of robotic assistance, but its second generation is incorporating robots. And uh, this is actually used in laparoscopic surgery or used to assist in laparoscopic surgery. And it's an interesting model. Uh, instead of uh, bringing the robot in as sort of a as something that can level the playing field for surgical talents, He's actually positioning it somewhat as a uh, as a replacement for for surgical assistance. So, at a time when hospitals are, are struggling to uh, to fill out staffs, this might be a compelling thesis. So, interesting topic. I'm sure you'll enjoy these conversations. But first, I'm going to open up with a conversation I had with Hassan Mukberry. He is the head of business development at Futech. We're going to talk about Futech's work in medical devices. Thanks for joining us, Hassan Mukberry. Tell us about Futech. Thanks, Tom. Futech Advanced Sensor Technology, we are located in Southern California. We are known for miniaturization in the sensor market. You know, basically the founder and the CEO of the company is a sensor designer himself and been involved in the past 30 plus years in this market. And everything started from aerospace. So imagine he was one of the tested engineers on the Discovery Program when Rockwell International was awarded from NASA to build the space shuttle. And then after that program concluded, he started consultation and the sensor company. And so we got a reputation from 
Aerospace. We have two sensors on board of Mars Curiosity rover since August 2012, and which is still operating up there. So that's why we talk about solutions from subsea to Mars. We have uh, sensors on board of autonomous robots at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, tightening valves up to the Red Planet that is operational even today. Uh, Perseverance is one. There's a most recent one launched, and uh, Curiosity been working up there since 2012. And then from that point, all of those capabilities. Uh, along with miniaturization and trying to focus on the unmet need of the market. So all of we try to put, find the gaps in the market, position ourselves to solve those uh, problems in the market. So instead of putting on energy to compete, we try to actually fill the gap with our technology and add edge to our business. And that's where we are today. The bulk of the business comes from aerospace and medical. And that's why we are in device talk having this conversation today. We'll have more from Hassan a little later in the podcast. I have two other questions that I posed to him. So we'll spread them out throughout the episode. Now let's hear from Dave Fischel of Stereotaxis and Dr. Daniel Cooper, Associate Professor at Washington University's School of Medicine. All right, well, David Fischel and Dr. Dan Cooper, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Dr. Cooper, I'll, uh, I'll ask you a quick introductory question first, and I'll help the audience sort of get connected to your voice. What is your position? You're at Washington University, uh, and you're, you're practicing in, uh, in St. Louis. What's your, what are you currently doing uh, in practice, and uh, what is your connection with, uh, if any, with stereotaxis? I am an associate professor at Washington University in St. Louis. I've uh, joined faculty back in uh, 2003, so been at WashU for a while now. Uh, I've been the director of the EP Fellowship training program um, uh, for the last five years, and stereotaxis is something that's been, you know, uh, dear to us uh, because of its origins in St. Louis. Uh, my mentors, uh, Dr. Bruce Lindsay and, and Mitch Faddis, took a large role in some of the early studies, uh, proven the efficacy of the technology. And so it's always had a presence uh, at WashU. Uh, and over the last you know, decade, uh, I've adopted it, uh, particularly for specific complex ablation procedures that I feel um, there's really no better way to attack these uh, particular cases than, than with that technology. And so um, due to that, you know, experience, I've, I've grown closer to uh, David here and uh, the staff at Stereotaxis as, you know, they innovate and, and kind of move the technology forward. And you're, and you're joining us on the podcast to, to sort of demonstrate or, or present the, the, the benefits of the procedure. David, uh, let us uh, get into the, the Stereotaxis story. It's, it's a name. It, the company was founded in 1990. It's a name I'm sure many of our listeners have heard before, but may not have heard from in a, in a long time. Uh, tell us a bit about the company first, so everyone sort of understands what the technology is and, and how you combine medetics and robotics into surgery, because it's a, it's a very different approach than most robotic surgery companies that we hear about. Yep, sure. Happy to. I think we have a fascinating technology and that provides real value in a, in a big field of medicine. And we also have a very uh, long, interesting, complex history. Um, so happy to, to kind of to go into any detail on both. And from a, from a technology perspective, so we build robotic systems and instruments that allow physicians to perform endovascular interventions 
using uh, using robotics. Uh, specifically, uh, right now, one type of robotic intervention, one type of uh, endovascular intervention, which is treating heart arrhythmias with interventional catheters, uh, cardiac ablation procedures. Um, if you think about using robotics in endovascular intervention, the primary challenge is that you have to navigate flexible, small flexible devices in very delicate uh, anatomy. And the typical ways that robotic systems have been built are always with fixed rigid systems. And, mm-hmm. um, and, so when, and, and so what Stereotexas did in order to allow a different mechanism of action where you have direct control of the tip of a, of a catheter, uh, we use externally applied magnetic fields to create that direct distal control of a catheter tip rather than, again, relying on the rigidity of a catheter uh, to translate control from the handle to the tip. And, um, and so our robotic system um, are two magnets on mechanical motors that are computer controlled uh, that create very precise magnetic fields around the patient's chest. Um, uh, those magnets are on both sides of the patient in the operating room and a physician sits at a computer control station and is able to navigate an interventional catheter and using the computer interface. Actually, this would be a great time, David, if you would mind, Dr. Cooper, coming in. What is the interface like uh, with the stereotaxis system? Uh, how, do, how does the doctor control the distal tip? Uh, sure. So, you know, if I could back up just, just briefly to kind of paint the picture of the alternative. So, you Please. know, on, on a day-in, day-out basis, the conventional ablation catheter is something that we direct from the groin, the patient's groin, the patient's femoral vein or femoral artery is our point of entry. And so we are navigating through the vasculature, the blood vessels up into the heart. And in order for what we are doing at the groin to be transmitted to the heart, that tool has to have a certain degree of stiffness so that it it doesn't kink and so that we can deliver the movement and and move the tip of the catheter and deflect the tip of the catheter in a way that'll reach our target region. Um, And all of those factors require the catheter to to have a certain level of of stiffness because of the pull wires and the braiding and and everything that's required from an engineering standpoint um, to deliver that movement. And the challenge, once you get in there, is that uh, you're dealing with heart tissue that is flexible and deformable and in constant movement. So the heart is beating and and the patient is breathing, moving the thoracic anatomy up and down. And so um, it, it takes some skill to be able to balance that catheter in a way that is touching the tissue uh, consistently without too much force, able to deliver energy to the tissue that will get rid of the rhythm problem without causing an adverse event, like a tear in the heart. And so where the stereotaxis catheter comes in is that it solves a lot of those difficulties because, you know, the conventional catheter takes years of of experience to become so good at, uh, at maneuvering it that you can maintain efficacy with with a low uh, you know low complication rate. Um, 
the flexible catheter, the magnetic catheter that stereotaxis makes, essentially removes a lot of those obstacles. It's the consistency of almost a spaghetti noodle. Um, it's driven by the magnets, so it's pulled into the tissue rather than forced into the tissue with forward movement. And it's able to maintain this consistent contact because of the nature of the catheter. It's so soft that it actually moves with the heartbeat and it moves with the respiratory cycle up and down. Um, so you maintain that steady contact and that contact um, is at a force that is predictable, uh, allowing you to kind of dial up your parameters in terms of the amount of power that you're delivering to the tissue so that you can, you know, deliver the desired type of lesion to that, you know, particular chamber. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it also lessens the learning curve, you know, because like I said, it takes years to get, to get good at, 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 in respect to efficacy and safety with a manual catheter. Whereas with the flexible catheter, there's a lot more wiggle room to move around, um, with, you know, less chance for adverse consequences. Um, so that's, that's what makes it a, you know, a, a more enjoyable, <laughs> real relaxing type of approach. I bet no, and it's, it's something you don't hear as a layperson. The, the training that goes on to performing into performing these procedures. I'm curious, what is the interface like? What are you seeing when you are performing this procedure? Are you looking at a monitor and clicking an arrow on a with a mouse like I do on my my yeah. uh, my laptop, or is it uh, more? I imagine it's more sophisticated than that. Yeah, well, you know, once the the catheter is is placed in the delivery tool. Um, uh, uh, you essentially go behind, uh, you know, uh, a wall in the control room, sit down in a comfortable chair uh, in front of a computer screen and utilize a mouse uh, to uh, advance and retract the catheter and move the magnets uh, 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 in any way that is required to reach, you know, the target tissue. So, yeah, you're sitting in front mm -hmm. of a computer screen. Um, uh, uh, without, you know, uh, wearing lead when you're at the, the patient bedside because of the use of fluoroscopy, x-ray, you have to wear lead the entire time. Um, whereas when you move back behind the screen, the operator is no longer exposed to the radiation from the fluoroscopy. So you take the lead off, uh, which obviously is a relief to the back over, you know, these long procedures <laughs> that can be anywhere from you know, an hour to six hours, depending on the, the uh, arrhythmia substrate we're dealing with. Um, wow. So, yeah, you know, essentially sitting at a computer screen with all the data in front of you. And, you know, I'll just throw one more thing in there. It's, it's really the perfect teaching environment, too. I, I work, you know, obviously in an academic setting where I have a lot of learners. So I have, you know, fellows and residents, interns, uh, uh, medical students that are, are with me at any given time. And because I'm not at the patient bedside and led um, uh, in the more sterile environment, I'm able to sit there with all the data in front of me and, and also teach as we're moving through the procedure. Interesting. It would seem to be an excellent synergy with the, the growing adoption of digital technologies in, in the OR and the hospitals. And I imagine younger uh, physicians who are who are gamers and quite quite native on that on that platform might find this uh, a more approachable uh, way to perform the procedure. For sure, for sure. I, th I think that the younger uh, generation 
it's much quicker to adapt to this technology. That even the, the chair that uh, comes with the system looks like a gamer's chair. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, and just last question about the the procedure. Does this impact the the length of time required for a procedure? Are you able to do it more quickly, or does it take a, longer? It depends on the procedure. You know, I, I think um, there is a learning curve up front where you learn the logistics yeah. of the system, and the staff have to learn the logistics of of honing the magnets. Um, and so at, at, at first it, it probably adds a little bit of, uh, delay as you learn those logistics, but once those are learned, uh, the procedure is of similar duration, uh, for most arrhythmias that we target, um, for some of the more challenging, uh, rhythm problems from the bottom chamber, um, I've actually found it much faster because you're able to traverse, uh, the difficult anatomy, um, from one angle for, you know, I don't want to get into the you know, too far into the nuts and bolts of, of specific procedures. But um, there are usually a couple different ways to approach. You know, one way is through a vein uh, and uh, a puncture uh, uh, across the um, upper chambers of the heart. Another way is to go in an artery and go backwards. And sometimes uh, you have to do uh, both. Um, the stereotaxis catheter, because it's so soft and because it's able to essentially do catheter gymnastics and, and make loops and, and go into tough to reach places, you can often just use one approach to get to every position you need to get to. So in that regard, I actually feel that it, it makes my procedures faster for some of those complex ones. Um, but once you, sure. you learn it, it certainly doesn't slow you down and it can uh, uh, improve the efficiency in, in um, the complex ones. Terrific. That's an excellent overview of, of what we're talking about, the technology and the procedure. Now, now, David, I'd love to understand sort of the, the business side of things. <laughs> Explain how you came to learn about and understand stereotaxis. I understand you're, you came from the investment side and, and you've, you've really been involved as an investor to some degree with, with a lot of the robotics companies. So you, you seem to have a, a, a great overview of the, uh, the surgical robotics universe. Yeah, so I, I come from an investment firm called Dauphin Capital Management based in Los Angeles. And uh, for over 20 years now, we've invested in uh, both drug and device companies that are pushing the boundaries of medicine, trying to address unmet medical needs. And, um, and, and I had experience investing in a passive investment role um, in, in companies like Intuitive Surgical, uh, in their early years, and in uh, Mako Surgical, which was uh, pioneering robotics and hip and knee arthroplasty, and uh, and and when I came across stereotaxis, I was intrigued by by a dichotomy where, on the one hand, you had a very elegant uh, technology. I believe that, as Dr. Cooper described, the mechanism of taking control of a catheter directly from the distal tip using magnetic fields is the most elegant way to improve endovascular interventions with robotics. And so Stereotexas had developed this very uh, sophisticated technology, and that technology actually was working in the real world in a fairly robust fashion. We have about 100 hospitals globally that have treated by now about 140,000 patients in total. Um, so that's a, it's, we're still a small company, but it's a relatively robust real-world validation that the technology was very practical and useful. And uh, the clinical data was as good as it gets. And so in, in any investment decision, uh, one of our uh, core questions is, if God forbid someone in our family had this disorder, would we want them treated with this device or drug? 
and all of us mm -hmm. um, uh, felt very strongly that if, if, God forbid, we had an arrhythmia, we would want to be treated with stereotoxicous robot technology because of the safety benefits, because of the precision and the stability. And, um, and so kind of that all, that's almost kind of as good as it gets from a foundation uh, to have a, a good technology that's differentiated, that adds, uh, that works in the real world and adds real clinical value. That's really kind of what you, what you always dream for. But then the dichotomy was, was that on the other hand, the company had been around for many years and had already by then a five, seven year period of, of kind of stasis where there was declining adoption, uh, the company had a very bad balance sheet and, and was kind of on the verge of potentially disappearing. And, um, and so that's kind of an interesting dichotomy to have on the one hand such fundamental uh, kind of positives and on the other hand um, a fairly poor business situation. And we decided kind of to, to, to take a much bigger uh, role in, in trying to rebuild stereotaxis and advance the technology and uh, put it back in a position of um, uh, financial uh, health. And, and uh, that has been kind of one of the greatest adventures uh, one could ask for. So you, you became involved with the company, I believe, in, in 2016. Is that right? So we made in late 2016, um, uh, we, along with two medical device CEOs, um, uh, uh, Joe Chiani, who's the CEO of a company in uh, California called Massimo, they're the global leader in pulse oximetry, uh, non-invasive mm -hmm. monitoring of patients, and uh, Dr. Arun Menawat, who uh, was the CEO of a company called Novadac, which uh, pioneered intraoperative um, uh, perfusion imaging, and now is CEO of a company called Profound, which is treating uh, patients with uh, prostate cancer. Um, we and, and the investor, a few other investors, uh, invested in Stereotaxis. Uh, we paid off all of the company's debt, uh, we gave it operating capital and we took board seats. And then uh, shortly thereafter, in early 2017, uh, I took on also the operational role as CEO. So explain to me what you're trying to, I want to find out, I think I said prior to the interview that I followed Stereotaxis earlier on. I remember in 98, 2000 and the, and the Stereotaxis would, would go public in 2004. There was a time when it was sort of a uh, a bit of a, not exactly a horse race, but you had intuitive and you had stereotaxis and they're both presenting very different, different approaches to robotic surgery. Uh, intuitive clearly went the direction it went. Stereotaxis, as I mentioned, was a name we haven't heard about in a while. What went wrong during those years? And, and I guess what shortcomings are, are you trying to correct now that you're in charge? Sure. So maybe kind of a few points there. The first is that and stereotaxis and intuitive are both pioneers of robotics, but we do it with a very different focus um, uh, in medicine. And so I, I wouldn't view us at all as competitors. Uh, we're really both trying to transform different fields of medicine. Intuitive has mm -hmm. done an amazing job in transforming laparoscopic surgery. Um, and, and stereotaxis has really uh, been and remains the pioneer uh, in, uh, in advancing robotics and endovascular intervention. And they're very, very different. Uh, laparoscopic tools are not flexible devices that have to navigate the blood vessels. Um, uh, similarly, our approach of using magnetic fields wouldn't really be relevant for laparoscopic surgery. So these are both two very, very 
big broad classes of um, of surgical intervention, and uh, and we've just kind of um, we're both pushing in our own fields to modernize those fields. Intuitive has obviously been uh, the, the the most successful medical device company of the last twenty years uh, in how they've uh, transformed laparoscopic surgery. If I think a little bit about kind of uh, stereotaxis's history and what led to um, to its current position, you can almost think about um, the history in, in maybe kind of three, three kind of phases. Uh, the first would be kind of the initial phase where there was, uh, you know, kind of let's say 2000 to 2010, just kind of for rough number, rough, rough kind of uh, years, where Stereotexas was highly innovative, it was really pushing forward this kind of uh, this new uh, novel technology and approach to um, to navigating catheters, and um, and kind of and it started to commercialize and and in its early years it commercialized relatively well in the 2005 to 2010 timeframe it sold over 100 robotic systems and there was kind of quite a lot of adoption of its technology as it as it started to uh, commercialize. The challenge at the time was that the system was launched somewhat prematurely when the technology was not yet ready for prime time. And because of that, many of the installations were not um, did not actually actively utilize the robot. So they would buy a system, install it, and then it would sit idle. And that concludes part one of my interview with Stereo Taxes. We'll bring you part two after I speak with Chris Newmarker and Daniel Kirsch and bring you a word from our sponsor, Futech. All right, Chris Newmarker, do you know what today is? Chris Newmarker, Thursday? It's Thursday. I, you know, I think it's some kind of national day, right? It is an international day. International. International podcast day, my friend. Podcast recorders of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. <laughs> we are more powerful than ever. We'll be giving away free content to the world. So I've got you a little international. With a little bit of advertising, just a little bit of like friendly advertising. But well, yes. We, we've, we've slipped into our nonsense. But before we continue, I want to let everyone know that Danielle Kirsch is with us. Hey, Danielle. Danielle. Hey, hey, Tom. Yeah. And Chris, thanks for having me again. Woo. Danielle's been watching the Theranos trial. She'll give us a, a, an update in, in a little bit. But uh, Chris, I got you an International Podcast Day card. You want to hear it? It's right here oh, in front of me. Wow. Oh, wow. That's so sweet, Tom. That's well, nice. you know, it's been a special yeah. relationship, you and I, for the last yeah. year and a half. So here it goes. Ready? I'm going to read it. MedTech people are cool. There's no room for fakers. But I pity the fool who misses... New Markers Newsmakers. Excellent. Well done. <laughs> oh, wow. I love it. We are simpatico sync, my friend. Got it. Mind we- meld. This is great. <laughs> love it. So it's let's great. roll into number five on the big NN list. All right. Number five on the list. We've got, uh, this was just uh, out of FDA. You know, we're talking here on Thursday, just today, FDA uh, announced that they had uh, granted a 510K clearance for uh, Siemens Health and Ears. Uh, I, I, I have, this is a hard one to pronounce, a Neotum Alpha. But, you know, the really neat thing about this is they're describing this as like the first major advance in CT technology in nearly a decade. Wow. This new uh, 
you know, CT system out of uh, Siemens Health and Ears is counting each individual X-ray, X-ray photon, and you know, which which is enabling um, more detailed 3D imagery. So um, I actually have uh, some requests out to Siemens Health and Ears for uh, more information, and you know, hope, hoping to find out more because this uh, uh, definitely the way FDA describes it, it sounds very exciting. Yes, it's more detailed 3D imagery about what is going on inside yeah, a patient. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Very, very cool. cool. All right. All right, let us roll on to number four. Well, number uh, four, we've got like a SPAC attack. SPAC attack. SPAC attack. SPAC attack. Lumera DX. Uh, they're now trading on the NASDAQ under uh, the symbol LMDX after their uh, SPAC deal closed with uh, CA Healthcare acquisitions. So they've, uh, you know, they've got... Uh, you know, they're a point of care diagnostic testing company. They've got more than 30 assays across common uh, health conditions. So I, I think, you know, we're getting near a point where we just got to do a huge roundup of all these these companies that have gone public uh, through through SPAC deals this year. It's such a huge trend. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just remember the time when it was just like a dearth of IPOs. It was like, oh, that's just companies don't go public. You know, they just get acquired or whatever, you know, now, yeah, now we're getting like just, you know, companies going public everywhere. No, I agree. You definitely we should uh, should do a wrap up of those and see how they're doing. I know we have one coming up later this month, and of course we had Vicarious Surgical uh, earlier this year. Yeah. And uh, speaking of Vicarious, uh, they put together their own. Speaking of International Podcast Day as well, their own podcast. I was happy to contribute to it. I I tried to make myself sound smart. Uh, it's called More Capable. And for anyone who needs a pretty uh, pretty good overview of the robotic surgical space. Uh, the more capable podcast. It's on Vicarious's website, vicariousurgical.com, but it's also out there in podcast land. So it was fun to fun to be on the other side of the podcast microphone. Very cool. Very cool indeed. It was good, good, good stuff and informative. They had uh, folks from iRobot. They had uh, obviously uh, folks from Vicarious, but a lot of uh, a lot of people who are looking at surgical robotics more as a for surgical phenomenon than just the the company by company look we have apps, but uh, we've got, we've got a very cool industry we're covering here, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's just so many hot spaces right now. It's uh, yeah, definitely not. I mean, I mean, it's exciting what, what, you know, the, this industry and space could do to like, to like improve people's lives, save absolutely. lives. Which is kind of interesting segue. Cause now we're going to bring in uh, Danielle Kirsch to talk about uh, the Theranos trial. We've been watching the trial of Elizabeth yeah. Holmes and uh, just a lot of discussions about that. And, and, and Danielle, you can update us on what's going on. But it just I think it's sort of the the the, the bright light that's been focused on what Theranos did and how they did it. I think just sort of is an indication of how seriously med tech people take their jobs as creating devices that can diagnose disease and, and help people. It's uh, I think it uh, definitely runs contrary to uh, everyone's mission when products are being created uh, that don't do what they say they can do. So. Interesting, interesting yeah. kind of contrast. But Danielle, how uh, how has the trial been going? What's what's new this week? Well, in the last three days, one of Theranos's former lab directors has taken the stand all three days. And the first day, he gave us kind of uh, an inside look at Holmes's demeanor when he told her that the tests didn't work or he was uncomfortable with the Walgreens launch. And he said that she seemed nervous, nervous and upset is what he said during his testimony. So I thought that was really interesting on the first day. And then this on the, on his second day on the stand, he actually revealed that he was the source for the Wall Street Journal's 
on coverings of the happenings at Theranos. And he was actually, he was actually uh, the basis for the bad blood book that John Kerry wrote. Wow. Wow. I was trying to remember the, the, the gentleman's name is Adam Rosendorf. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw that today about it revealed to this key source. And I couldn't remember whether he was highlighted in the book or not, or if so, how he was presented. He was Alan Beam in the book. If, if, if anyone's read the book and remembers all the names in there. Okay. So that was a, that was a pseudonym. That was a fake name. Yes. Oh. He was under, yep. Well, he was in a pseudonym. there you go. All right. So we're getting some just interesting, like new, you know, new pieces of information is coming out of this trial. Yeah, for sure. It's it, every day. It's, it's like I said before, it just, goes a different direction every day. And then the most recent, on the most recent day of the trial, we're starting to see some of the pharma companies um, taking the stand to talk about how they weren't actually validating those tests and how um, the one in particular that took the stand yesterday was Celgene. And they said that uh, they ended a partnership with Theranos because Mm -hmm. the tests weren't, they weren't matching up to like the gold standard method of how tests results came through so they were like well we're kind of gonna in this partnership but let us know if it ever comes back into range i mean theranos was just like promoting their blood testing technology so much and you know these i mean kind of seems like these pharma companies like thought this could be something like really useful for them as they conducted studies but it just wasn't working out right the one in particular with Celgene was just so they could like do a drug trial on a drug that tests or that treats anemia. So that's interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, life sciences companies, med tech companies, pharma companies, they they're about the data. They need to see the proof to make sure it works. It's it's great to make claims, but this isn't uh, this isn't developing an app that's going to get dinner to your door faster. This is something that's going to determine whether or not people are sick and need treatment. So you got to have the data. And we're back again with Asan Mockberry, the head of business development at Futech. Asan, you told us about Futech at the beginning of the podcast. Now, tell us, who do you work with in the medical device industry? So we, we covered that front um, in three different fronts. You know, I mean, uh, we work with capital equipment manufacturers. So almost um, the top 30 uh, medical device companies out there, they either build their own device or they have subcontractors, they're building the capital equipment. So from surgical robots to infusion uh, systems, to angioplasty system, to dialysis system, all of these equipment considered the capital equipment. We have safety features in process control, haptic feedback, Uh, type of force or torque measurement solutions inside that would be utilized for safety and for precision motion control. So that's one front. The other front is having sensors on board of surgical instruments that would be interacting and engaging with the cathode equipment. And last part is um, high volume manufacturing of consumables. So those every, all the consumables in the medtech market, uh, they require unique customization. There are automation subcontractors in the market. They build the machines from scratch. Most recent cases are the uh, vaccines uh, for the COVID cases. And all of that requires a lot of automation. And we have solutions that would go inside this type of machines. And that's where we bring the sense of touch to the machine or the robot. But where we are known for is the surgical robot and most importantly, haptic feedback. So basically bringing the sense of touch to the fingertip of the surgeon behind the console. So what he's cutting, sealing, stapling inside the abdominal cavity, he can sense how much he is pressuring the tips and manipulating the end effector and having that sensational move at his fingertips 
so you can make a better decision. And at the same time, that information being collected and then analyzed later for designing better products and being uh, collecting so many points of data from different ages, genders, ethnicities, being able to make better tools out there. So if I want to name customers, basically the uh, the top players of the medtech market, each one of them in a different way is our type, our customer in the three different categories I mentioned. We'll hear more from Hassan Amakberry of Futech a little later in the podcast. And now we'll pick up our interview with David Fischel, CEO of Stereotaxis, and Dr. Daniel Cooper, Associate Professor at Washington University's School of Medicine. In this next segment, David explains why Stereotaxis's system initially didn't take hold. Let's listen challenge at the time was that the system was launched somewhat prematurely when the technology was not yet ready for prime time. And because of that, many of the installations were not um, did not actually actively utilize the robot. So they would buy a system, install it, and then it would sit idle. And kind of some of the some of the challenges at the time, just there was a latency in the system. So every time uh, as Dr. Cooper described, he uses a mouse uh, to navigate the catheter. Every time that you would move uh, a vector on the screen with using the mouse, there would be a, a few second delay until the catheter would actually move in the real world. And that type of latency uh, can be very frustrating. It's uh, I, I kind of I think about it as as if kind of you take your notes using pen and paper, and I give you a laptop, and I tell you that. The laptop is great. You can now um, uh, type your notes and you can edit it and you have spell check and you can save it and you can share it with others. And there's all of these benefits from now taking your notes on a laptop. But if there's a, if every time you type or you move your mouse, there's a, a three second latency that would probably drive you crazy. And you might, you might just go back to pen and paper. Sure. And, um, and, and there were other challenges as well. This is a different way to navigate. As Dr. Cooper said, there's a learning curve. At the time, neither the company nor the physician community really understood best practices on how to navigate catheters with this new approach. And so there were just kind of several challenges that made actual adoption in terms of procedure adoption, physicians using the robot that has been installed, uh, challenging. Unfortunately, as that happened, the company started to see a decline in the number of systems being sold. And like most young companies, the company was hiring and investing, uh, expecting continued revenue growth. And so as kind of revenue started to decline, the company had to scramble to cut its team to cut expenses. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't have a great balance sheet, so it had to do dilutive financings. Uh, that causes its stock to drop. And, and you can almost envision how e- each of these kind of serve as almost a negative feedback loop. Uh, you cut your team, you're going to have disruption in the organization. It's harder to sell systems. Um, you do Your stock is dropping as you do dilutive financings. That makes hospitals a little bit more concerned to make a large investment in a robotic uh, program and 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 kind of an, and that serves as kind of then a negative feedback loop and so the company got stuck in this type of negative feedback loop for quite a long time and during that period unfortunately there was relatively little continuous innovation of the technology mm-hmm. and so you had kind of this period of stasis where the company almost was in a a type of zombie mode where it would raise money to survive it tried to keep the lights on um, there was progress in terms of physicians 
learning how to use the technology, generating more clinical data, showing how good the technology was. But, uh, but for the most part, the technology stood, uh, stood static. And, and that kind of gets us now to this kind of most recent phase in the company's history where we've really been looking to rebuild the company off of that strong foundation of a, of a differentiated technology that works and that provides real good clinical value. And, and we've been really focused on kind of three primary efforts. The first one was cleaning up the company financially. And, um, and as I mentioned, we paid off all the debt. We gave the company operating capital. We run the company really as, uh, as owners who, who, um, who kind of, who, you know, kind of, I, I took no salary uh, for the first four years while being here uh, in this role. And, and uh, we really kind of treat the company as owners who want to build a highly successful company. We're not here to, to, to kind of to take, a, to take a salary and sit on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. And, and we have now a company that has 44 million cash, no debt. Uh, despite doubling our investment in R&D, we run the company near break even. And so I think we've been overall successful in, uh, in bringing stereotaxis back into financial health. The second big area of focus was ensuring that robotic practices, the hospitals and physicians that, uh, that have adopted our technology, are able to have very successful robotic cardiac ablation programs. And so instead of focusing on selling systems, we really kind of oriented the commercial team towards having all the right infrastructure and processes and incentives to make sure that physicians like Dr. Cooper can have successful procedures, can attract patients, can publish uh, impactful clinical literature, can train the next generation of physicians. And, um, and so that was really kind of on the commercial side, that's our that was our strategy and remains kind of the most important aspect of our commercial strategy to make sure that just selling a robot is not, while it sounds nice to sell a robot and you gain revenue from that, in reality, if that doesn't convert into being a successful practice, it's a liability rather than, a, than an asset. And, um, and so really kind of we, that's been our commercial a focus, and I think we've done many things there. We implemented actually. Dr. Cooper was the inspiration for it, and and helped initiate it. A, a fellows program, which trains by now about forty fellows uh, globally at any given time. Um, uh, we've implemented a, a, a broad range of infrastructure that allows robotic practices to to be successful in this holistic way. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the last focus was on innovation. And on a robust innovation plan. Well, let's let's talk about that. I was uh, I do want to get into the, in the future and, and follow up on a few of those other points as well. But how have you changed innovation at the company? Have you uh, reinforced or, or reinvested rather in R and D? Are you able to to bring people back? Because I imagine those are probably one of the first to go when when times get tough at a company. The the engineers would move off to a a, a, a sure position somewhere else. Yeah, we're, we're we're fortunate that we have a core group. Of, uh, of engineers that really are um, are able to do amazing feats. Um, and so uh, we have a strong R&D team. We've been able to also rebuild it and grow it over the last few years. Um, but they're able to do uh, kind of things that when I look at, uh, at other companies that have tried to build robotic systems in other clinical fields, uh, oftentimes have an order of magnitude larger uh, size than our team and um, and are not necessarily able to do it uh, 
better than us. And so I think kind of that's really one of the gems there within Stereotax is, is how well our engineering team is able to, to build robotic systems. And ro robots are complicated. You need this uh, confluence of uh, large you know, mechanical hardware, uh, micro instruments, uh, electronics, uh, control software, user interface software, and all of it has to work kind of perfectly together. Um, and so building robots that, uh, that can withstand the, the kind of challenge and demands of the real world is actually very, very tough. And how are things changed on, on the business side? Are you uh, charging for the system or are you uh, leasing these, this equipment? Have you, have you changed at all the, the transactional aspect of putting systems into, into hospitals? So, so our, our, our model is very similar to the typical model for a surgical robot. Uh, we'd sell the robot um, and then we, uh, we have a disposable that's used for every procedure. Um, and so we have both kind of an aspect of, uh, of an upfront capital revenue and then a recurring revenue on the installed base. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't changed that. When we think about what our innovation strategy has been, it has really been, um, you can think about it kind of in a, in a few broad goals. One has been building the right ecosystem of uh, interventional devices and diagnostic uh, data to support electrophysiologists uh, as they perform cardiac ablation procedures. And so uh, despite how well our clinical data is, many of the tools that, uh, that Dr. Cooper and others around the world use um, you know, are by now about 15 years old. Um, and so there's kind of significant room for innovation in the catheter itself. Um, uh, we implemented uh, new softwares that allowed us to integrate preoperative images of the patient specifically, uh, to integrate better with a broader range of, uh, of intraoperative uh, imaging technologies. And so really kind of trying to improve the ecosystem that our robot works within. Uh, on the robot side, we did a lot. Uh, we, we, have, we launched uh, just last year our, um, our newest robot. Uh, which is the first real architectural change in the system since it was launched uh, also about 15 years ago. And, um, and, and kind of the guiding goal with our robot innovation has been how do you make robotics more accessible and affordable to hospitals? I think that the clinical data uh, for, our, for our technology justifies that the system should be available uh, kind of in every hospital, but there are still uh, construction challenges um, logistic cut challenges, cost challenges to doing that. And as we, uh, uh, what we did with Genesis was make it much smaller, much lighter, easier to install in a lab. Um, and again, we kind of, we continue to push forward on that kind of overarching goal of making robotics broadly accessible so that you could have it in any interventional lab. And, and then the last kind of area is to grow from uh, from our beachhead, which is electrophysiology, to really being able to apply the benefits of having this soft, gentle catheter with, uh, that can be moved with precision and stability, um, and, and being able to apply those benefits not just in electrophysiology to treat uh, patients with arrhythmias, but also in other um, endovascular fields. How far away do you think you are from uh, moving into those other fields? We're making tangible progress, and um, and so we've talked about uh, we're a publicly traded company. We've talked about sharing some of that mm -hmm. progress and and um, some more concrete details on that plan at the end of this year. Okay, terrific. Uh, circle back to you, Dr. Cooper. 
Explain to me how having the new system uh, changes an electrophysiology practice and uh, how does it how does it fit into the hospitals? So and perhaps you could, because uh, I wanted to talk to you earlier about the the physicians who are not using the systems after they were purchased. I mean, when you first mentioned that you could perform this without wearing a heavy lead smock, <laughs> that seems like a huge selling point. <laughs> so the fact that it had, they, the system hadn't been used really speaks to, to what uh, David was speaking about, about the latency problems. So sure. how have the new systems perhaps reinvigorated the, the, the use of, of these systems? What is, the, what is life like using the, the, the stereotaxis system? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first point to, uh, to illustrate is that, you know, electrophysiologists are, are a strange bunch. You know, I, I think we're, we become very set in our ways. We're, we're doing things that are, you know, relatively, you know, high stress, you know, with, you know, a, a lot of potential complications that can happen, you know, during our procedure. And so as we learn our craft, um, I think we gravitate to what we know and what we're used to. And as you gain years and years of experience on doing something the same way over and over again, you draw a lot of comfort from that. Even if the technology sometimes is a little outdated, it's what you know. And so you, you kind of stick with that. And so it's hard to get electrophysiologists uh, off their favorite catheter or off their favorite you know, mm-hmm. three-dimensional mapping system. And uh, and it and it often takes you know kind of a dramatic you know change in things to to you know grab our attention and, and have us you know kind of change our ways, and so I, I think the thing that kind of you know got us back in uh, heavily interested in the stereotaxis system uh, is a lot of the things that David illustrated that it's sometimes just a sense you know a, a sense that the company is back to being innovators and and trying to make, you know, our, our life better. Because I think we all know any of us that use the system, even in the early days, know the advantages of the flexible catheter. That, that goes without saying. You know, safety is the thing that I focus on with every single one of my patients. I, I tell my patients, uh, we're going in to do this procedure. Um, every second of this procedure, my focus will be on safety. And right behind that is getting you a nice, efficacious result, of course. But I will always sacrifice efficacy for safety. And I feel that the stereotaxis system essentially lends itself incredibly well to that mindset, that safety is almost just inherent to everything that you do with that soft, flexible catheter. And so you can almost shift your focus to just the efficacy part, getting to the tough to reach uh, places. So I think, you know, that sense that the company is strong, that the support is incredibly strong, and the fact that new things are in the pipeline made us come back uh, to using it more and more. Now, you know, at an academic center, it's always a challenge because if there was a stereotaxis system in every hospital in the country, uh, I, I would feel great about doing essentially every one of my cases with the stereotaxis system um, for all the reasons that, that we talked about. Mm-hmm. But our trainees, our fellows, they, they need to learn their craft. And most of the hospitals that they are looking at currently, you know, may not have a system. And so those manual skills uh, have to be learned during, during fellowship. And those of us that have, you know, a number of years under our belt um, feel confident that they can use the manual catheter 
with a high level of efficacy and safety. And so we feel that that is uh, a reasonable trade-off to, to, to keep using both types of ablation. There are some ablations that I um, cannot reconcile <laughs> not using the flexible catheter in. There's a particular uh, approach, mm -hmm. PVC ablation, um, that uh, I cannot convince myself that I can do as well uh, or uh, even close as well with a manual catheter um, for particularly the, the tough ones that are um, recurrent from outside referring centers. They've already had multiple ablations and they're being sent to us for their third or fourth ablation. I feel that, that we have a procedural advantage by using the magnetic navigation. So even in those circumstances, I never use manual uh, because I, I don't have the clinical equipoise to say, you know, I, I think I can be just as good with both. Uh, and so, you know, for those particular situations, it's, it's used 100%. Um, now, you know, with my partners or, you know, my colleagues in the EP community that don't use it at all, um, I think it's, it's what we talked about. I think they're, they're used to what they're used to. Um, uh, they, 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 they know the stereotaxis story going back to the early days that, that David illustrated uh, and you were asking about. Um, and I think there, there remains some hesitancy to adopt it uh, until uh, they uh, see overwhelming, you know, evidence that it's, dramatically better uh, and affordable for the healthcare system that they're operating in. Um, so, it, you know, I, I feel like the tide has, you know, kind of turned us uh, towards greater utilization. And I, I see, you know, more and more adoption. And the trainees that are being churned out in these magnetic environments are, you know, essentially planting seeds all over the country <laughs> because, they leave our program specifically, and, and they've seen the benefits of using it for some of these complex cases. And those are my, you know, those uh, fellows that, that I've trained that have gone on to centers without it, uh, they miss it. And uh, um, I think in a perfect world, uh, you know, they, they would all have them, uh, and maybe that 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 day will come. But uh, um, you know, that's that's kind of how I look at that. And final word for you for you, David. Uh, a quick question. Uh, this would seem to lend itself to the possibilities of remote surgery someday. I wonder if that's something you're, you're exploring at all. And the bigger question that I'll ask you to end with is, uh, what are you looking for to be the sort of the tipping point where you know this comeback story has, has been successful? What will be assigned to you that uh, you, you got stereotaxis, your team got stereotaxis back to where it needed to be? So maybe I'll, uh, I'll answer that second question because it doves in a little bit with what uh, Dr. Cooper was just speaking about. When I was listening to Dr. Cooper, I was kind of thinking that he's, he's describing very, very honestly, very nicely uh, why medicine generally evolves slowly. Um, it is just, uh, uh -huh. it, you know, as, as a field, typically things transition in a relatively gradual fashion and I think kind of all of his um, all of his descriptions kind of made it very clear uh, the different factors and kind of why that happens, and um, and so I kind of I, we're in this project as a longer term project because we think that uh, stereotaxis can positively transform endovascular intervention in the same way that intuitive surgical transformed laparoscopic surgery, and so to some extent it's hard to say when we feel great that we have accomplished our goal. Uh, like in most goals, uh, the goalposts change over time and you continue to uh, <laughs> evolve it as you as, as kind of you go. But um, 
but we want to make sure that we're kind of every year you want to say this year, am I closer to that reality where endovascular surgery will be performed with robotics, where you will have the benefits of um, both the mechanistic benefits and the digital surgery benefits uh, applied to uh, these interventions. And so I'm kind of, uh, so far we've been able to march down that path. We're seeing kind of rapid progress in uh, every aspect of the technology. Um, and, uh, and, and we kind of, uh, we have a lot that we're still working on. So I think we're kind of excited for what we'll be able to accomplish over the next few years in terms of uh, both in electrophysiology and in starting to uh, address other uh, kind of other diseases um, uh, with our technology. And so I'm, I'm kind of excited about that path ahead of us. And that gets me maybe to your first question, which was about uh, remote surgery. And, and maybe mm-hmm. kind of to set the stage before jumping right onto that, to set the stage a little bit, robots have been used um, across surgeries, whether you look at our robot being used um, uh, in cardiac ablation procedures, or you look at intuitive surgical Da Vinci system across laparoscopic surgery or Mako or Mazor, uh, robots have been used predominantly for their mechanistic benefits, uh, precision, stability, uh, in our case, having this kind of soft, gentle catheter, which improves the safety profile. Um, but really for the mechanistic benefits of the robot, there's this whole other class of benefits that we're, that all of us uh, in the field are really just scratching the surface of, which is the digitization of the operating room. And robots serve as kind of the, the necessary foundation on which to digitize kind of the operating room. And certain things have already been done. So let's say image integration, being able to uh, overlay and present nicely to a physician preoperative data on the patient with intraoperative data, and by doing so, help in decision-making. That's something that uh, Intuitive Surgical has done, uh, we've done, um, kind of that, that's something that uh, has been already started. Um, things like automation, we have uh, certain automation uh, routines that can be built into the program. So the same way you think about self-driving cars or um, kind of there's certain routine types of activities that you can imagine being um, being really uh, designed by the physician, um, uh, the physician kind of then guiding the robot to do it, but the robot being able to do those routine activities in a, in a more consistent fashion. Um, and so those are things that we've started to build into our system, but are continuing to improve and to refine. Um, and telemedicine is one of these kind of other uh, core columns within this digital surgery um, uh, field. And, uh, and so we have started to see uh, some remote um, uh, procedures being done just on kind of a um, uh, demonstration to demonstrate that the technology is viable. And so actually last summer, we had um, a physician in Italy and a physician in Portugal who collaborated together. Uh, Each one was supporting and partially participating in uh, the procedure of the other. And so the physician in Italy was was overseeing the procedure taking place in Portugal and and was helping uh, navigate the catheter at certain points and then vice versa. And... um, and so we've seen a few of these kind of long-distance uh, procedures take place. Um, when you do a robotic procedure, all of the procedural information can be aggregated on one 
large screen display for the physician. And so it's uh, not a, a major leap to go from there to enabling remote viewing of that screen and remote control of that screen. And um, and we've been uh, and, and, and so we've really been kind of working to refine that. And we've also been advancing some of that technology uh, so that in the future that can be done in a in a more consistent, more accessible way. Um, and uh, and hopefully in the future also we can pursue in the U.S. a more formal uh, label for uh, remote surgery. I think that um, what will ultimately uh, kind of guide that to being uh, actually something that can be used in day-to-day practice is more is less the technological hurdles and more the societal, uh, legal, uh, regulatory hurdles that need to be uh, that need to become addressed and need to be kind of accepted by society. Fantastic. Well, it's an exciting story. Uh, it's great to, to see Stereo Texas on the way back. And uh, we've, we've spent a lot of time today. I'm really grateful for both of you for taking so much time and, and for, for sharing the story on the podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, we're back. Chris Newmarker, hit us with number three on the Newmarker's Newsmakers. All right. Number three on the list, there was uh, news from the uh, Irish government that uh, Boston Scientific is going to spend uh, the equivalent of about $34 million on its cork uh, facility. And uh, they're going to be uh, you know, creating uh, 70 new uh, engineering and production jobs there over the uh, next three years. But the uh, Irish government in their uh, you know, announcement was saying this was about uh, accelerating the development and and manufacturing of minimally invasive medical technologies, you know, treating people with uh, cancer and peripheral artery diseases around the world. So, so yeah, a nice, uh, good investment, you know, in, in Ireland uh, from uh, Boston Scientific. Well, if, if we uh, if we cannot get Device Talks Costa Rica off the ground, then I would be all for Device Talks Ireland event. That would be great. I've been to, to Dublin twice for medical device events, but never have been able to tour sort of the Galway area where all the medtech companies are. It'd be cool to, to check all that out. Yeah, but don't forget to check out some Gaelic football. Yes. While drinking a pint of Guinness. You know, That's you on my that. list. Yeah. yeah. Be a good deal. That's definitely on my list. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, and, you know, I just, you know, this isn't in the uh, New Markers Newsmakers, but I also just mentioned just, you know, today we had a big, uh, big announcement of a big investment in uh, in, uh, in Cambridge in, in Massachusetts that, you know, Moderna is going to be building like a uh, nearly, uh, you know, half million square foot uh, science center. So, I mean, some some really cool stuff going on in Boston right now. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, a lot of life sciences movement, a lot of new facilities being built, and uh, Moderna certainly is a is a major presence here. Uh, and I read in the Globe this morning there was actually a protest in front of the CEO of Moderna's house. Oh goodness! Uh, that involved a lot of people from the life sciences industry, insisting that Moderna relax its uh, relax its its IP protection of of its uh, vaccine and may allow more people to make it. Wow. So I was surprised that the uh, a lot of folks within industry were were pushing for that, and in the healthcare industry as well. So uh, we'll we'll see we'll see how that goes. But yes, Moderna is going to be a a welcome addition to an increasingly larger life sciences footprint here in uh, yeah. here in Boston. All right. What is number two on the new markers newsmakers, Chris? All right. Number two on the list. Uh, we've got Abbott winning uh, FDA approval for their uh, next generation uh, Amplatzer uh, talisman um, PFO occlusion system. Um, it, it's interesting. You know, Abbott was noting in the in their news release that, uh, you know, a quarter of adults have a uh, flap like opening inside their heart that they didn't close after they were babies. This increase your increases your stroke risk. Interesting, yeah, that's funny. So, I've, I've heard of that before. I remember some startups yeah. about ten or fifteen years ago were going after that. 
so yeah well abbott's abbott you know they've had their uh you know their amplatzer pfo occluder uh out for a few years originally approved in 2016 and this is now like the next next generation version right. of it you know and it's uh you know kind of the, the big things was they had an diff- additional uh 30 millimeter device size to it and they're uh you know cutting the preparation time for the for the doctors because they you know the the occluders come pre-attached to the delivery cable. And this is the uh, the second FDA approval for that you're reporting on from Abbott in two weeks, right? Last week, we had the approval of their TAVR system? Yeah. Last week, we had approval of their TAVR system. So so yeah, uh, Abbott's been racking up some FDA approvals. That's right. A lot, of, a lot of cork, champagne corks popping over there at Abbott. So cool. All right, let's roll into number one, the new Marcus Newsmakers, Chris. Hey, number one um, on the list. Uh, this ran in full on our on Mass Devices sister site, Medical Device Design Outsourcing. And this was uh, from our uh, MDO editor, Jim Hammer. And uh, he, was, he was actually interviewing uh, Medtronic CFO Karen Parkle for uh, you know a larger profile. I'd say you know watch out for it. it's gonna. I, I think it's gonna be a really good, a really good story. I mean she's a, 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 a you know really a, a neat executive over at at Medtronic. Um, but while he was doing the interview, she you know mentioned some updates about how things are going with you know all the you know kind of like such supply chain um, you know hiccups that we've been you know seeing across the uh, the industry. I mean it uh, it, it wasn't like. To, it was pretty much, uh, you know, similar to a lot of the same things like CEO Jeff, Jeff Martha, you know, has been saying uh, to analysts. But I mean, there were there were a few different insights. It was a good it was a good story, just like kind of pointing out where things are, you know, for Medtronic and, and all of this. He got a good little quick news story out of this, you know, and just just her saying that, you know, Medtronic is you know holding up OK. But, you know, they're seeing like these, you know, supply chain pressures, just like everybody else that, you know, semiconductors are an issue, resins are an issue and that, uh, you know, it, it, you know, that, um you know, at least for now, they haven't ha- yet had to play the card with the government that MedTech needs to be in, in line, you know, first because of life-saving technologies. Though, when I was on a news conference last week with Avamed CS Scott Whitaker, he said that they actually, they are pushing the Biden administration to prioritize, mm-hmm. you know, the industry. I mean, kind of what he was saying was that, that they were, um, you know, starting to see some signs that the industry could be affected by supply constraints. So they're, you know, getting in there, uh, you know, getting in there before it becomes a problem and, you know, you know, trying to let the administration know, like, hey, you need to make sure the, you know, medical, whatever you do to try to solve these supply chain problems, you know, try to make sure that, you know, med tech is first in line near the front of the line, you know, to, to, to get these uh, needed semiconductors. I don't think you can wait until this, uh, until it becomes yeah. a problem. That's for sure. Can't wait until uh, until supplies aren't hitting the hospital. So glad Advamed is uh, is on top of that. It sounds like Medtronic is too. All right, now a final question for you, Hassan Mockberry of Futech. Robotic space certainly is exciting. Where do you see this area headed, especially with companies like Futech providing advanced miniaturized sensors? What we are seeing in the market at the beginning, the whole focus was on the uh, abdominal proportion in the torso, but you know, now uh, companies, more startups coming in, getting into their different niches, and they're trying to focus on their specific procedures. So each one of these companies trying to build their own capabilities and trying to have um, their unique uh, share of the market. So each one of them has their own patents or their way of taking measurements and doing the motion. 
So our type of solutions, either in the in that precision motion control, our solution is to work with these companies uh, to retrofit a piece of their robot. Or most of the time, that that comes down to size and um, making sure the solution we, we provide to them uh, not only meets the size requirement, performance requirement, but also meets the power consumption. And also it's hand-to-hand with the sensor is the electronics. That electronics having redundancy and having um, basically uh, fault detection, bringing more reliability to this market because most importantly at the end of the day is that reliability of the solution because the ultimate goal in this market is these robots becoming more and more autonomous and making their own decisions, being more automated, making better decisions. And that comes with more sensors, more data points, and that's what we are supporting in this market. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Asan Makhbari, and thank you, Futech, for sponsoring this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. For more information about Futech, go to futech.com. That's spelled F-U-T-E-K.com. Now let's run our interview with Dr. Alberto Rodriguez, the CEO and founder of LaVita Magnetics. Well, Alberto Rodriguez, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. I'm very excited to talk with you. You're, you are a surgeon, you're a physician. Uh, I'd love to understand how you came to uh, decide you wanted to start a, uh, a med tech company. What, what are the origin, what's the origin story of, uh, of LaVita? Yeah, I mean, in Levita, we are a very, what to say, <laughs> different company, uh, and also the story is, is quite quite unique. Uh, as, as you mentioned, I am a, I'm a surgeon. I, I train in, in Chile, my, my native uh, country, and I would say that I, I reached the, the medtech space by not even planning it. It was just mostly an accident uh, with the desire of, of how we can do things better, how we can always thinking, how we can have a, a better outcomes for, for patients. So, so these are quite, quite unique. I have been very fortunate to have a, a big experience before uh, reaching the company. I mean, uh, I, I leave all the transition as a medical student, surgeon resident and practicing surgeon. I, I leave the story of evolution of, of, of surgery and, and also I practiced almost 10 years in, a, in the busiest public hospital in, in Santiago de Chile. I was chief of the ambulatory surgical unit. So uh, I saw the problems firsthand and, and that's how the, the company kind of like the, the, the desire of, of, of doing something better. And then this translate to the company. That's how it started. Well, that's great. And it's, and it's a, a common path for a surgeon to sort of find a, a, a new technology. What, what astounds me is the uh, the idea of incorporating magnets into uh, laparoscopic surgery, I mean, that doesn't usually come to mind. <laughs> how did you, uh, how did that idea develop and uh, how did you decide it was a, a business you wanted to pursue? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting story because, I mean, what, what we saw is uh, the, the main problem that we have in, in the ambulatory unit that I, that I was uh, uh, driving was pain in patients. I mean, we, we usually couldn't send patients home the same day because they, they have pain after the surgery. And the main reason why you have pain after surgery is the incisions that you, perf- that you kind of like uh, doing the, in the abdominal wall. Um, that's the main root of, of, of pain, especially the incisions that you do it in the upper side of the, of the abdominal wall for, for the nurse that, that we have. So with my dad, he's a mechanical engineer. We, we start 
brainstorming how we can perform the surgery with less with less incisions, but giving the the capability of the surgeon to do the the movements that you need for the surgery and and, and avoiding so many incisions. And that's a way that we we we, we had when I was a child in my in my house. We have a this turtle tank. Um, I don't know if you you know the, the the kind of water turtles. So so we have some magnets. Sure, yeah. We have some magnets that helps you to clean the the glass without without changing the water. <laughs> so we took that concept of doing movements kind of inside of a of a, of a space from outside. We're using magnets. So that's why we figured it out that using magnets was a very elegant and, and has a lot of potential for doing that, of so creating movement inside of the, in this case, the abdominal cavity from outside uh, without damaging the, the wall. So we'll talk with stereotaxis on this uh, mm-hmm. podcast and their use of magnets to move the distal tip. Your magnetic energy is, is used differently, correct? You're actually, are you, are you trying to to move organs within the body to, to create the space necessary to perform the procedures? What? Yeah, I mean, our, our first product, the one that we, we, we have FDA clearance, is, is for creating retraction. It helps you to create the surgical space for, for doing surgery. So, so that's our first um, approach is, is demonstrating that you can use magnets in abdominal surgery for um, creating uh, traction. Is this a retraction? It's like how you use a grasper today. So that, that's our mm-hmm. first stage that we demonstrate that you can use it. Now we are combining with robotics and also we have more, more ideas. What I can tell you, Tom, is the magnets are the future of surgery and combination of magnets and robots is the, totally the future. So we are totally aligned with, with, with the other company. Well, let's talk about your, your first generation product then. So what, when was uh, Levita founded? What year? Well, I decided to stop my clinical practice, uh, sell my car, sell my apartment and move to, to the U.S. in 2013. Um, we have a first prototype that we construct with, with my dad in, in Chile, and we did all some preclinical studies over there, and we saw the potential. So, so I decided to go full in into, into the company in 2013. Um, we were the first in the world developing this, so we went through the de novo pathway with the FDA. Um, also, we have our model is, is conducting all our clinical trials in Chile. Uh, where I came from, actually, we, we perform a lot of our clinical trials in the hospital that I, I previously worked. And we were able to, to, I mean, working with FDA to demonstrate that this uh, technology was safe, was effective. And, and through the de novo pathway, we get our first clearance at the late 2016. And what was that first product? What did it do? I mean, it's our magnetic surgical system. It's, uh, it's the, manual, the manual system that actually we use uh, magnets mm-hmm. to reduce uh, incisions. Uh, our first customer was uh, Duke uh, University. So I, I moved from the Bay Area to, to North Carolina, oh. and I spent almost one and a half year being the first sales rep of the company because, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, mostly because I want to I wanna be close to, to the use of the technology. And you can use this in, in a lot of procedures, but we need to understand what was the best way of, of introducing the, the technology to, to the market. And in this process is that when we start figuring out that the combination of magnetics and robotics was very powerful. I mean, it was just a one step that could, could be taken for more steps to keep growing. Mm-hmm. So it has been kind of like interesting progression that has been very close to, 
to the actual use of the of the first product. So what what function did the first product uh, perform and what and what did it replace? It enables to reduce the number of incisions because you reduce graspers that you need for performing the procedure. You can reduce between one up to three incisions depending on how you use the technology. Uh, we have figured out that one of the kind of the, the easiest way of using it is in a bariatric procedures in sleeve gastrectomies that actually mm-hmm. we have managed to move from five incisions to three incisions, what we call magnetic sleeve. It's the kind of easiest uh, use of our technology. And, and the beauty about this is that we avoid the, the incisions that are in the upper side of the, of the abdomen that actually are the ones who produce more pain and also more complications. So you get rid of the incisions that are more um, damaging for the patient. So you're, through your procedure, you were you using one, one uh, opening to insert something that, uh, that was magnetic and would be attached to the tissue needed to retract it. And then the magnet on the other outside of the body would be used to sort of move the tissue inside the body. Is that correct? That's correct. And okay. also, yeah, you're not limited by the entry point as mm-hmm. conventional instrument because when you have a conventional grasper, you, you use a dedicated port that also is your pivot point that limits your range of motion. Okay. The beauty about magnets is you can really move from one side to the other, for the up, upper side of the cavity to, to the lower. I mean, it's, it's a very flexible technology that is, is different from anything else. And what is the, uh, how, how was that first product received from laparoscopic surgeons? Were they open to the idea or is it, is it that dramatically different than what they were previously doing? I mean, it, this is, fits very good with surgeons who, who want to provide a less invasive uh, procedures. I mean, who really see value in um, the, uh, reducing the number of cuts that you have to do to, to patients. So has been, we have great receptions in terms of, of surgeons who share that concept of how we can do the surgery in a less, less invasive way. So, so far, I mean, we are very, we, we, we have a lot of uh, signs that the adoption is, is going well. Um, so far, we have done more than 3,500 surgeries here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have data, very well uh, done studies that, sh- that prove that the reduction of incisions is linked to uh, less pain and a faster recovery and also uh, less use of opioids. So, so it has been very, 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 very like rewarding to see that, that, that surgeons see the value in our technology. Now, that would have... This seemed to be an attractive product that uh, a larger device company might have tried to acquire to have sort of that proprietary uh, technology. Curious, has anyone, did you have in mind perhaps that you develop that product and then stop and sell? Or did you always have this, uh, this, this, this sort of tiered approach where you develop product number one and then move into, I think, what is product number two, your robotic system? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, we first started the company as a product company. We always think that this product will be in the portfolio of a bigger, bigger strategic. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, in this period of, of launching the product, is, is that we start, we saw the, the potential, the, the combination of robotics and magnets. We saw that there, there was a, a, a very synergistic combination. So that's why we decided to be, make a big jump and develop our own robotic uh, platform. And uh, now our path is to be a standalone company. We, we see that the solution that we are bringing is, is broad, is very solid. Um, we, we, we bring what we call the triple impact uh, because it's better for the patients for the magnetic part. I mean, this reduces incision. So it's very clear for the patient that it's better. We reduce pain, we reduce length of stays, a very solid value proposition for, for the patient. 
For the surgeon also it's better for the less complex procedures like gallbladders, sleeve gastrectomy, that is the majority of the, of the market. It's, mm-hmm. it's a better, better platform for doing the procedure because the camera is a robotic camera, it's stable, plus the magnet give you better visualization. And also we bring value to, to the hospital because we reduce the use of personnel. I mean, our, our approach as it's different from anybody else, reduce the use of personnel for the mm. surgery. And so we see that we bring value in, in, in this three, in the three, in this three um, point that is, is different from everybody else. So that's why we see that we, we have uh, a value proposition, a product that, that make us think and, and, and um, go to be a standalone company. That's our current path. So let's talk about the, ro- the robotic system. Does that in- increase the functionality of your first product? Uh, and if so, what, what are you able to do with robotics or what will, once you have FDA approval for the robotic system, what will it be able to do in the operating room uh, that your, your first product can't do? Yeah, that's the, the core question. And what's how we make this, this transition is because you can use the magnet, you reduce the incision, it's better for the patient, but you need someone to be moving the external magnet in order to take real advantage of the technology. It's the same thing that with the camera. You, you depend as a surgeon for, for your assistant to, to help you to do the procedure. Mm-hmm. So you really need a very highly trained assistant in order to, to have a, a, good, a good assistant for the, for the surgery. I mean, in many cases, you have another surgeon helping you to perform the, the procedure that as you can see, it's not the most efficient way of, 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 doing, of doing surgeries. So, and also in the flip side, when you have a bad assistant, it's, it's, it's horrible. I mean, I have done surgeries with medical students that they don't know where the liver <laughs> is located. And it, mm-hmm. it's, it's a horrible experience because it's, it's the same feeling that when you are uh, teaching someone to drive that for the first time that you get the car, you're responsible for the car, but the other people is moving the, the wheel. And <laughs> so it's the same uncomfortable situation and also of course that increased complication increased the time of the of the surgery uh, so so it's not the ideal way of, of doing surgery with our platform you give that control to to return that control to the surgeon because you control the camera you control the external magnet that provide the, the surgical space so it's a better way of, of doing surgery for the surgeon and I can tell you that from firsthand because uh, um, we designed it with, 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 that, with that in mind how we can provide a, a better tool for the surgeon to do the, 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 the surgery. So the robotic, the robotic arms of your, your new system, do yes. they, 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 do the, they do the same retraction of tissue that the first system was doing just with automatically or with greater precision? Uh, mostly with full control. I mean, we, mm-hmm. first, we first developed uh, a robotic arm just for the magnet, and we conducted a, a clinical trial that, that we demonstrate that it was better to have a um, robotic control of the magnet in terms of giving control to the surgeon. Mm-hmm. And then you have the assistant just holding the camera. Yeah. So that's when we, we thought, okay, let's, let's move uh, another step forward and let's replace the, the assistant with the camera plus our robotic control of the magnet and that's our current, situ- our current uh, solution that is a, is a, is a beautiful, beautiful platform, very cost-effective because it's a, it's a smaller robot. It's different of the approach that everybody else has of having a, a big console and a, and a big robot, an expensive robot. This is a, this is a different approach to the market that we're very confident that will have a very good reception. 
So I'm, I've been focusing on the, the retraction of tissue function. Is there also, is your robot guiding the laparoscopic tools that are used in the procedure? Or is that still done strictly by the, the surgeon in, in the typical, more traditional way? Yeah. So far, I mean, with the current robot, we keep the surgeon using the two hands, mm-hmm. like a fork and a knife, if you want to <laughs> do it, the more, the more critical step of the surgery. We're still keeping the, the surgeon next to the patient. So that's what I mentioned. We are, it's, a, it's a different approach than anybody else. We don't replace the surgeon completely. We just replace the, the less complex um, say, like movements of the procedure, but actually are very important. Uh, and we keep the surgeon next to the patient in the, in the sterile field. That also is different from others. So, so keeping doing the more uh, delicate, I would say, like uh, parts of the procedure by, by hand. Hmm. So is it is it fair, and you can you can shoot this down to, to identify your your robotic system as almost a robotic assistant for these procedures? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm happy with that because I like solutions that are simple and work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't believe in technology just for the sake of it. <laughs> I think that that the, our core focus is bringing an impact, and our technology is is simple but it's straightforward and bring clinical value. And this also is another. Stepping it on in our development, so so it's fair at this stage. Interesting, because it's a it's an interesting distinction because you have many robotic companies who are suggesting their their platforms will elevate the performance of a surgeon who can benefit from someone else's expertise, and hoping the hope being that if you elevate the performance of surgeons, then it'll it'll uh, allow or it'll it'll help. Um, accommodate or help overcome the shortfall of surgeons that we're facing. Yours is actually the first system that I've heard about that that is positioned to say, look, there will be fewer people available. We'll have this system avail- uh, available to the surgeon to help with that labor shortfall that's coming. Is that is that a thesis of yours? Yeah. I mean, what we want to do, we're focusing in making the good surgeons more efficient. Yeah. Um, we're, I mean, we're very, how to say, out output driven. Uh, we use technology think, seeking an output. So, I mean, I see that in the future, there will be different platforms for different, for different indications. I think that others are working in the more complex procedures that I think is very, very important. Uh, we are focusing the, in the more simple procedures, but actually is the majority of the, of the cases that happen in, in, the, in the day-to-day. That's mm-hmm. why we're focusing on how we can make the surgeon more efficient, how we can make a surgeon make more cases per day, how we can reduce the, the labor related to, to that, because in that way you will be able to, to, to increase efficiency in surgery. And also with that, coupled with that, with a clear patient benefit, that, that's our number one. Uh, so that's why I'm saying that we have a different approach. It's a disruptive approach that, that, nobody, that, that nobody's following besides us. Can this be used in conjunction with a robotic system that is performing the laparoscopic procedure? Clearly. I mean, we, we, we develop our platform also in, in separated arms. So, so if you want to use our magnet in conjunction with the Da Vinci or the, the Yugo, we, we want I mean, to help patients. If mm-hmm. you want to ha- use our own platform for that, great. If you also want to leverage our, our, our just a robotic arm, with the other system, also we are happy because at the end, that's our goal. Are you just selling systems to the hospitals? How are, how are these made available to hospitals? And is there sort of a disposable model that goes along with this? Are you just selling the system or will you be selling tools 
to anyone who buys your system going forward? Yeah, I mean the 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 component of the system is is the it's a robot and also is the disposable inner piece, the disposable grasper that we already have it. I mean that's the part of the manual system. So mm-hmm. what we want to do is replace the external magnet with our with our robotic robotic platform. So yeah, our business model is based on 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 selling the disposables. And also, I mean, as this is a is a different approach to robotics, uh, we are considering, and it's very likely that we want to start with a zero cost um, upfront upfront cost for the for the hospital for the robot. Is a we want to make it really different. We want to make it really uh, easy to penetrate to the to the community. Mm-hmm. So so that's how that's how we are we are heading to uh, make it a very affordable. Uh, robotic system that even you don't have any barrier for starting to use it. Interesting. And the question of, of how will robotic systems be paid for in the future? That's, I know that's a, a model that others have raised is the fact they, won't, they wouldn't charge for their robotic system in the future. They'd give it to the hospital, but then they'd obviously provide the supplies going forward. So uh, that's certainly an interesting approach. What sort of evidence, what sort of endpoints do you need to meet in your clinical trials to, uh, to obtain FDA approval? I think I read that you were hoping to File for approval by the end of this year and perhaps be commercial next year? Yeah, we are preparing our FDA uh, submission. Um, we are, this is a part of our current system. I mean, we have the approval for the system. So our robot will be an accessory to, to our system. Um, we, have, we have worked before with the same branch from the FDA. Uh, we're very careful to demonstrate the, the safety of, of our technology. So, so we have a very solid plan uh, this is a low-risk uh, robot, in our in our opinion, because most of the movements are done outside of the of the patient. So we're very confident that we can get FDA clearance. We're planning to have it early next year, and we're mm-hmm. preparing our our initial entry to the to the U.S. market with the experience that we already have with the first product. And what level of approval do you need from the FDA? Uh, we're thinking that it's a five ten k clearance based on, as I mentioned, we have already we want to use our our system as a as a predicate. So, but of course, we have to work with FDA in order to 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 get the the proper clearances. Interesting. And how have you uh, how have you been funded? I was looking online for some fundraising news. I didn't find anything. I didn't look for for a very long time. I saw our one mil- one one million dollar round, <laughs> and I I find it hard to believe that that was all that you've raised. But uh, can you share a little bit about your financing? Yeah, we, we are very, how to say, different than anybody else. I mean, as I mentioned, we're coming from from, uh, from from Chile originally. So we have been very efficient in terms of, of use of resources and reaching this point with, 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 few, with, with how to say, like few resources compared to other companies. And most of our money is coming so far outside of, of, outside of the U.S. Nevertheless, mm. we are having now U.S. investors. And actually now we are talking with more traditional U.S. U.S. Uh, venture firms because we are seeing that the opportunity, as I mentioned, is moving from just being a product company to a robotic platform company. Mm-hmm. So, so we are talking with new new base of investors, thinking about the next steps that we can we we keep taking in order for taking this technology to a to a global scale. And just final question, kind of a an over overview of where we're headed. What do you think an operating room? either for open surgery or for laparoscopic surgery, what, what does it look like 10 years from now? Are we going to have a couple of robotic systems in there and one surgeon controlling everything, like a one-man band sort of thing? What, what is it, how do things look? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that, of course, surgery and robotics 
will be by I mean the surgery will be with robots. I mean that's that's a that's a very clear stuff. I think that artificial intelligence also will play a big a big role. I think that you will have to keep the surgeon close and commanding all these uh, this new these new platforms. I think there will be different platform for different uh, surgeries because for example a prostate surgery is totally different than a gallbladder surgery or a sleep gastrectomy are, are totally different um, procedures. So I think that you will have different uh, platforms for, for, for indications. And I'm predicting that surgery will be just with just one small incision. I mean, that, that I think that is what makes more, more sense. And of course, the surgeon playing the, uh, using all the coordinating all these technologies. All right. Well, certainly some, uh, some exciting times. And uh, uh, you've got some news coming up in the, in the coming months. I look forward to uh, keeping tabs of your story and uh, hope to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for, thanks for joining us, Alberto. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And yeah, we, we have more developments in, in our files that I'm happy to be showing in. Meanwhile, we, we, keep, we keep growing the company. We'll keep our eye out. Thanks so much. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, well, now it's time to reach out and connect to our MedTech community. Danielle Kirsch, where can folks find you on social media? I am on Twitter at Danielle underscore Kirsch, K-I-R-S-H, and the same name on LinkedIn. Excellent. Chris Newmarker? Hey, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. I'm also on Twitter, at Newmarker. All right, I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. I am on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. Please connect to all of us. Please tag us when you share this podcast episode on your social media channels, and we'd very much appreciate if you would do that. And of course, uh, when it comes to this podcast, Chris, what do they need to do? Hey, you got to like, follow, subscribe. That's right. Like, follow, and or subscribe on those podcast applications so uh, you don't miss a single episode of the be Device there Talks. Or be square. <laughs> of the Device Talks weekly podcast or our Medtronic Talks podcast, or we have another podcast that we'll be introducing very soon, I hope next week. So uh, you'll want to like, follow, and subscribe for that Can one. Can we tell as well. them what it is? Or we got to just. I'm superstitious just, until until I have it edited and ready to go out. I don't want to say anything publicly, but it's going to be good. All right. we're, we're teasing it out, though. It's There's good. something good coming. It's going to be good. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us. That's yeah. a wrap. Tune your, in next your week. timer is set up over your podcast oven as you're like, <laughs> we wait for it to come out. Are they it's ready yet? No, it's still, <laughs> still a little gooey, but it'll be great. So uh, tune in next Don't week. Don't burn the bottoms of the cookies, though. You got to <laughs> keep an eye on it. Keep an eye on it, Tom. <laughs> I, think, I think Chris is hungry, so we better get going. Cool. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Tune in next time. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast waiting for you. Hey, in falls here. Enjoy the fall. <laughs> you never know what you're going to say. It's so exciting. <laughs>